Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The U.S. is leveling a fresh wave of sanctions on Russia. It comes as world leaders gather in Brussels, but they say Russia isn't the only major source of concern. The war in Ukraine has created over 3 million refugees. NTD speaks with a member of an immigration think tank, and he explains how Ukrainians are making their way to the U.S. through the Mexican border. Top executives from 10 major U.S. airlines are calling on President Biden to end the mask mandate for those using public transportation. They argue it makes no sense that people are still required to wear masks on airplanes, yet can congregate in other crowded spaces. Former President Trump is suing Hillary Clinton and over a dozen others. The suit claims Clinton made false allegations against Trump during the 2016 election, among other things. Two private islands in the Caribbean, owned by deceased sex offender and financier Jeffrey Epstein, are now listed for sale. They could fetch as much as $125 million. Sanctions imposed on Russia are meant to cripple its economy. But a China ambassador this week urged Chinese businessmen to waste no time and fill the void in the Russian economy. The U.S. and other countries are trying to prevent this. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more. The White House immediately responded, warning China not to help Russia get around these sanctions. The U.S. and G7 are unified in stopping this. Together, they will soon announce a unified initiative to prevent systematic sanctions busting. The Biden administration is also prepared to enforce export controls if Chinese companies send semiconductors to Russia. The Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, explains that all Chinese semiconductor companies rely on the U.S. software to manufacture these tiny chips. Raimondo warns, quote, if we find that they are selling chips to Russia, then we can essentially shut them down by denying them use of that software, and we're absolutely prepared to do that. But there's more that needs to be done to hold China accountable, House Republicans say. At their retreat this week, the GOP is calling on the Biden administration to do more to hold China accountable. Do not let China corner markets. When you look at what happened in America, just from our medical supply, when you look what China is doing when it comes to critical minerals, you, when you look time and again what China has done on stealing our technology. And the chairman of the China Task Force, Michael McCall, is urging the administration to learn from the Ukraine invasion to avoid a similar scenario in Taiwan. Moving forward, we can't make the same mistake of not arming Taiwan like we didn't arm Ukraine in advance. Republicans have also been pushing for the administration to investigate the origins of the CCP virus. How can we have hundreds of thousands of Americans killed by COVID, but a government that will not look and know where the origins have created? They also want to hold China accountable for its cover-up when the outbreak first began. Today, Dan Skorback attended a funeral for a fallen soldier in Lviv, Ukraine. While many there were grieving, others expressed pride in the sacrifice he made for his country. Lviv says goodbye to another soldier. Ihor Fedorchik died in combat on the second day of war in Nova Kahovka. His twin brother said his final goodbye at the Saints Peter and Paul Church in Lviv. 
Locals came to pay respects and Igor's brother recalled their last conversation. I remember how he called around 3 o'clock and told us that he loves us. The Lviv mayor told us the city has bid farewell to dozens of soldiers and treated each one as a hero. With every single one, we have the honor to say goodbye to a hero because each one of them gave their life so that we can live. We don't know how many of them God will take, but these funerals are special. The women cry, the men don't have tears anymore, the men and fathers have pride because their sons became a strong foundation for our country. This is very different from before, because today our country is becoming stronger every day, stronger because of the blood spilled by our citizens. And you can see the passion of Ukrainians, the passion of our soldiers. We will fight to the end, to the last drop of blood. You can destroy a certain part of the army, but you can't destroy 40 million people. They don't have so many rockets. Although the front lines are hundreds of miles away, the tragedy of war came home today. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Lviv, Ukraine. Are Ukrainians flying to Mexico to cross the border into America? NTD's Jason Perry spoke to a member of an immigration think tank who explains how Ukrainians have been making their way to America through the southern border. Often I get this you know, claim that, you know, you just you just want to shut down borders because the people are brown and black. Well, these are white Christians, and I say they should not be allowed to come in. Todd Benzman is a Texas-based senior national security fellow for the Center for Immigration Studies and also the author of America's Covert Border War. He says the U.S. can't take any more refugees right now because the immigration system is under siege and is about to collapse due to Biden administration policies. He said since October, there's been about 1,300 Ukrainians that have flown to Mexico and claimed asylum at the United States' southern border. We are watching television images and seeing the suffering of the Ukrainian people. And there's this natural sympathy that goes to them because, you know, we're Americans. That's how we, that's kind of how we roll. Earlier this month, President Biden tweeted, we will welcome Ukrainian refugees with open arms. But Benzman says, not so fast. He explained that showing up at the border doesn't mean that they should be let in without considering their other options. And the Ukrainians are offered three-year residencies in any of 27 European Union countries. Uh, those are the best countries in the world to live in, best economies, most freedoms, and the UK also providing this, this incredible offer. The temporary protection directive allows Ukrainians to bypass the usual asylum procedures and immediately grants them access to health care and the right to work in any of the 27 countries in the European Union. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Biden is in Brussels today meeting with world leaders. What is their latest action plan toward Russia? NTD's Iris Tau has more. World leaders are gathering in Brussels to plan their next steps on Russia. And during the unprecedented one-day trio of NATO, G7 and EU summits, President Biden announced a fresh wave of U.S. sanctions. They target over 600 Russian lawmakers, elites and defense companies, which he said, that fuel the Russian war machine. 
The U.S. is also giving $1 billion in humanitarian aid to Ukraine and will admit 100,000 refugees fleeing the country. With a focus on reuniting families. And that's adding to $2 billion worth of military equipment. And our weapons are flowing into Ukraine as I speak. But more concerns are rising. Our allies are deploying additional chemical and biological and nuclear defenses to reinforce our existing and new battle groups. NATO says it's bolstering its eastern flank and preparing for chemical, biological and nuclear threats. Meanwhile, another key concern the leaders are discussing is China. China must not provide economic or military support for the Russian invasion. But that doesn't mean the West is worry-free. In a potential warning to China, G7 and the EU are vowing to punish any attempt to help Russia evade sanctions. And NATO members are discussing setting up a system... A system whereby we have an organization looking at who has violated any of the sanctions and where and when and how they violated them. And after the meetings today, President Biden will travel to Poland. He's also expected to announce a major move tomorrow to reduce European dependence on Russian oil, potentially by shipping liquefied natural gas, or LNG, to Europe. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Howe, NTD News. As NATO finishes its first day of the emergency summit, NTD's Jason Perry spoke with retired Lieutenant General William G. Boykin to get his perspective on the meeting. The general said it's imperative that the military alliance figures out what to do if Russia decides to use chemical or nuclear weapons. Retired Lieutenant General and Executive Vice President of the Family Research Council, William Gerald Boykin, says it's critical that NATO has an emergency summit now because they need to figure out what steps to take if Putin gets so desperate that he uses chemical or nuclear weapons. First of all, this has been a war of miscalculations. Uh, Vladimir Putin miscalculated uh, the uh, response from uh, the European Union. He miscalculated the response from NATO. He re miscalculated the uh, will and determination of the uh, Ukrainian people, and he miscalculated his own military's readiness for this. I then asked him what other situations may cause NATO forces to respond to the conflict. He said it depends on how bad the humanitarian crisis gets in Ukraine, which could be the worst the world has seen since World War II. We basically saw the same thing in uh, Berlin. You know, the Berlin was just destroyed. Um, but I think that could trigger uh, a response that could wind up being a no-fly zone, a corridor that would allow uh, UN forces or NATO forces to go in and start extracting people and get them out of there. He pointed out that the U.S. military should have been providing equipment and support to Ukraine long before Russia launched its invasion, warning that there may come a time when it will be too difficult to get humanitarian and military aid to Ukrainian forces. Are we coming to that point? And I think that's a big thing that everybody's concerned about is winding up having to put U.S. military personnel in there, either in the air or on the ground or both, in order to open uh, passageways in to resupply the uh, Ukrainian military. General Boykin said Finland and Sweden may join NATO in the future and that Ukraine may one day apply for NATO membership after they get out from under the rubble. Jason Perry, NTD News.
the leaders of 10 U major U.S. airlines are calling on President Biden to end the mask mandate for people using public transportation. In a letter sent to the president yesterday, the airlines also called for an end to the testing requirement for international travelers. Here are the details. The CEOs and presidents of 10 major U.S. airlines and cargo carriers sent a formal request to the president Wednesday. They want the pandemic travel restrictions gone. Among those who signed on to the letter are top executives from American Airlines, Delta, Hawaiian Airlines, Southwest and United. The joint letter says that now is the time for the Biden administration to end the restrictions, adding that mask and testing requirements are no longer aligned with the realities of the current epidemiological environment. The executives argued that it makes no sense that people are still required to wear masks on airplanes, yet are allowed to congregate in crowded restaurants, schools and at sporting events without masks, despite none of these venues having the protective air filtration system that aircraft do. Earlier this month, the TSA extended the mask mandate for public transport through April 18th. A few days later, the U.S. Senate tried to scrap the mandate, passing a resolution to overturn the public health order. The move immediately drew a veto threat from the White House, and the Biden administration responded saying the CDC is helping to develop a revised policy framework for mask requirements on public transport. The Senate Judiciary Committee wraps up the last day of confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. The American Bar Association and 10 witnesses spoke on the judge's qualification. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Good morning. A special welcome to the guests who are testifying before us today. Senate confirmation hearings for President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, ended on Thursday. The American Bar Association presented their evaluation to members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. On 8, March 18th, the Standing Committee voted unanimously that Judge Jackson earned our highest rating, well qualified for an appointment to the Supreme Court. Everyone we talked to, interviewed, or had substantive contact with uniformly gave the highest praise, brilliant, beyond reproach, first rate, patient, insightful, impeccable, A+. Five witnesses testified in favor and five testified against Jackson's confirmation. One of them testifying against the confirmation is Keisha Russell from the First Liberty Institute. She points to Jackson's stance on critical race theory, or CRT. Ultimately, we cannot expect someone who subscribes to critical race theory to defend and protect the Constitution, because CRT asserts that the Constitution is not worth defending. Such a view completely contradicts the oath every judge takes. Number two, a judge who embraces critical race theory perspective that America must address racism by encouraging racism cannot be an impartial judge. One of the witnesses testifying in favor of the confirmation is the dean of the University of Virginia School of Law. She says she's known Jackson personally and professionally since 1998. She highlights Jackson's rich legal background and experience as a judge. As a trial judge, she has shown deep respect for precedent. She has written about the importance of stare decisis, which informs her view of the judge's role in our constitutional scheme as simultaneously crucial and modest. Accordingly, her opinions are based on precedent and committed to the rule of law. They are fact-based and pragmatic, open-minded and analytical. Another witness testifying against the confirmation is Eleanor McCullen. 
a pro-life sidewalk counselor. She was the lead plaintiff in the 2014 Supreme Court case McCollin v. Coakley. In that case, the Supreme Court unanimously struck down a law in Massachusetts that banned people from standing within 35 feet of the entrance of abortion clinics. I was deeply saddened to find out that Judge Jackson, while in private practice, advocated in favor of Massachusetts' previous buffer zone law in her amicus brief on behalf of abortion clinics. She and her colleagues maligned pro-life counselors characterizing us in ugly and false ways. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he will move to have Jackson's nomination come to the floor in short order, and that the Senate is on track to have her confirmed before Congress breaks for Easter. Meanwhile, ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Chuck Grassley, says he expects Republicans on the committee to continue to push for pre-sentencing reports and child pornography cases overseen by Jackson. Allison Lee, NTD News. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas missed his third consecutive day of oral arguments, and the court has not given an update on his condition. He was hospitalized on March 18th. Chief Justice John Roberts told the court that 73-year-old Thomas is unable to be present, but that he's participating on all cases. Thomas began missing oral arguments on Monday, a day after a court spokeswoman revealed he had been hospitalized with an infection. A spokeswoman told the Epic Times that the infection is not related to COVID-19, but declined to share more details. Thomas is the longest-serving justice on the court. When Justice Stephen Breyer retires this summer, Thomas will become the oldest. Former President Donald Trump is suing Hillary Clinton, the Democratic National Committee, and others. The lawsuit alleges that Trump's former opponent made false claims against him regarding ties to Russia, which hurt his campaign and political career. The lawsuit includes more than a dozen defendants. The suit seeks around $70 million in reparations. A South Dakota hotel owner posted on Facebook over the weekend that Native Americans were no longer allowed on the property. The owner's message caused backlash in the community, and now she's being sued for discrimination. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. Last week, South Dakota hotel owner Connie Ura said on social media that she would no longer allow Native Americans on the property. The message was included in a screenshot posted by Rapid City Mayor Steve Allender on Facebook. According to media reports, the post, now deleted, came soon after a shooting incident near the hotel involving two Native American youths. Native American leaders responded to the post by holding a peaceful protest and then filing a lawsuit. NDN Collective, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the Native American community, and Sunny Bear, a Native American who says the hotel management refused to rent her a room, filed a class action lawsuit Wednesday. The lawsuit states that due to a practice of intentional and willful racial discrimination, plaintiffs and other Native American patrons have been denied equal services. Nick Tilson, president and CEO of NDN Collective, said he hopes this lawsuit will stop the mistreatment of Native people. We are looking for, we're looking for justice. And in the form of justice is to prevent this from ever, from any Native person ever being treated like this again by this business or any business moving forward. News Center One reported that the owner sent an apology letter addressed to the Lakota Nation, saying she sincerely apologizes to all the Natives for her post. 
But the report says she also repeats many claims of violence that she attributes to what she calls bad natives. Tilson said her apology is a day late and a dollar short. And she actually didn't actually apologize for, she apologized for uh, her comments, like this is a PR thing. But she violated our civil rights. We reached out to the Grand Gateway Hotel but did not receive a response before broadcast. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Up next, unvaccinated professional athletes in New York City can now return to the court, but all other private sector workers still need the shot. The new rule draws controversy. And once bitter rivals battling it out on the streets of New York, now friends, a rideshare partnership that caught everyone by surprise. That and more coming up on NTD Evening News. Rideshare right, giant Uber and the iconic yellow taxis in New York have been bitter rivals for nearly a decade since Uber was created. But now former foes become friends in a surprising new partnership. NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. All right. Thank you so much. Grabbing a taxi or grabbing an Uber, there used to be a big difference, but now you soon may be able to get the iconic yellow cab taxi on the Uber app. Uber reached an agreement to list all New York City taxis on its app. That's according to an exclusive report from the Wall Street Journal. We don't get rides over here. You see it right here? They show if you accept trips. Bitter rivals of the past, not too long ago, frankly, hopefully coming together. Um, so. That's the biggest surprise, I think. I spoke to New York taxi driver of 10 years, Giulio Palmieri. But it's probably a good idea, you know. The more opportunities we have, the better for everyone, you understand? Palmieri says he has no hard feelings towards Uber. To go outside of Manhattan, two, three, four in the morning, you know, you definitely pick up someone going to the airport. Mark Warnquist is the CEO of Insure Tech Company, Inshare. He was formerly the global claims director at Uber, managing claims for over 70 countries at the time. I'm hopeful that the, the prices don't go up. They might go up a little bit. We might see a little bit of that. Uh, but, you know, we've already seen some price, price hikes with the pandemic. So I don't think that's the biggest part of this. The former Uber director says with rideshare and last mile delivery picking up, there's been a shortage of drivers. Uber and, and other platform companies have have been trying to find whatever ways they can to increase the supply of drivers. And Uber just did that, right, with 14,000 drivers. That's a, that's a very big deal for New York City and for Uber. For this service, taxis won't be using the meter to charge a fare. Instead, drivers will get paid in a similar fashion to riders ordering an Uber X. The partnership is expected to launch later this spring. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. More and more vaccine mandates are being dropped in New York City. The latest one affects athletes and entertainers living in the city. Basketball player Kyrie Irving has been in the spotlight because of that mandate over the past few months. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from the Big Apple. Athletes coming into New York City to play against one of the teams here never had to be vaccinated against COVID because they were exempt from mandates. Home team players did have to be vaccinated. Now that changed, however, and unvaccinated home team players, such as Kyrie Irving, for example, can get back to work. Hometown players had an unfair disadvantage for those who were coming to visit. 
New York City still has mandates in place for employees of every private and public sector company. Many are criticizing the mayor, saying that unvaccinated famous athletes can get back to work, while everyday New Yorkers can't. City Council member Joe Borelli tweeted, What is the rationale for exempting basketball players from the city's private sector vaccine mandate, but not the ushers or janitors in the arena? When asked about it, the mayor didn't say what the rationale behind it was, but acknowledged it was a hard decision. There are going to be many tough decisions that I'm going to have to make as the mayor of the city of New York. And we should be glad that there's a mayor who's willing to make tough decisions to get us through these tough times. This week, the city got a new health commissioner. When asked how long the mandate for private employees will stay in place, he said it's going to stay indefinitely. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. And in the college ranks, March Madness resumes tonight with four games on the schedule. That includes a Duke versus Texas Tech matchup that could be Coach K's final game. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Tonight's games tip off at 7 with top-seeded Gonzaga taking on Arkansas. The Bulldogs have gotten off to slow starts in each of their first two games, but look for them to get off to a fast start tonight. Gonzaga big man Drew Timmy rallied the team from 10 down at halftime against Memphis Saturday to win. While Arkansas quietly recorded a win over Vermont in the opener and then New Mexico State in the second round, despite shooting just 27% from the floor. Look for heavily favored Gonzaga to advance. Villanova won their first two matchups with relative ease, giving coach Jay Wright 18 wins in his last 21 NCAA tournament games. Meanwhile, Michigan used two second-half comebacks to make it this far as seven-foot-one center Hunter Dickinson led the way. His presence in the lane should help Michigan upset the smaller Wildcats. Texas Tech looks to play spoiler as they take on Duke in Coach K's final tournament. His Blue Devils needed a late-game comeback to top Michigan State Sunday, but you don't win five national titles without knowing how to win games like that. It's hard to see his team falling to Texas Tech at this juncture. The final game features the two teams with the most wins this year. 33 win and top seed Arizona needed overtime to get past a 13 loss TCU team last time out. While 31 win Houston pulled away in the second half against a tough Illinois squad. Watch for Houston to advance in a low scoring affair. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Tiger Woods fanatics, those with money to spend anyway, have a chance to walk away with a historical piece of sports memorabilia. The clubs used by Woods to complete his so-called Tiger Slam in 2000 and 2001 are currently being auctioned by Golden Age Golf Auctions. The set is comprised of nine irons and two wedges, and all are said to be well-worn. Auctioneers are expecting the price to fetch more than a million dollars. They said the clubs were last privately auctioned in 2010 and had, had been displayed in a Houston office complex. Woods Tiger Slam started in 2000 when he won the final three majors, the U.S. Open, British Open and PGA Championship. It then continued in 2001 when he won the Masters, becoming the only golfer in the modern era to win all four majors in a row. And coming up, another brazen smash and grab in broad daylight. Robbers looted a jewelry store in a wealthy California city and got away with up to $5 million worth of merchandise. 
The California State University System will no longer consider standardized tests for its admissions. The school system will now focus on other yet-to-be-decided factors to select incoming students. Jeffrey Epstein's private islands in the Caribbean are now listed for sale. Jeffrey Epstein was an American financier convicted in 2018 of soliciting a minor for prostitution. Later in 2019, he was again charged with child sex trafficking in New Jersey. Epstein was awaiting trial on those charges before his suicide in a Manhattan prison. The two islands for sale are known as Little St. James and Great St. James. Epstein purchased Little St. James in the late 1990s for about $8 million. He had used it as the venue for his crimes. In 2016, he bought Great St. James at a price of more than $20 million. Estimates suggest that the two islands could fetch as much as $125 million. According to an attorney for Epstein's estate, part of the proceeds will be used to settle pending litigation. And over to the West Coast, a high-end jewelry store in California is one of the latest victims of smash-and-grab robbery. The owner said they lost up to $5 million in merchandise, and the robbers knew which pieces to steal. NTD's Eileen Ang spoke to the store owner to hear what happened. Smash-and-grab robbers looted the high-end Beverly Hills jewelry store in broad daylight on Tuesday, according to the police. Thieves made off with anywhere from 3 to $5 million in merchandise. The owner of Luxury Jewels of Beverly Hills, Peter Seji, said he was sitting in his office at the time. He heard what sounded like gunshots and told his employees to get down on the floor. I waited for the, what I thought was gunshot sounds to stop. I grabbed my gun. I ran out. I saw my window was broken and, and uh, they were taken off. A car pulled up, which turned out to be stolen. Four assailants started uh, pounding the window. But we had 12 tempered glass, so it took him like seven, eight, nine hits of each one of them hitting it to finally break. And then they took off, ran to the back of the alley, and there was another getaway car waiting for them. The thieves used sledgehammers to smash open the jewelry cases at about 2 p.m. Seji said the thieves knew where to find the high-end jewelry and watches. No one was injured, but they cut themselves while trying to pick out glass shards from the remaining items. They didn't have a security guard. So now we're just trying to deal with getting new glass and showcases and cleaning up or floors are all messed up. Uh, moving forward, probably get a security guard. The Beverly Hills Police Department is investigating the case. Critics have pointed to California's Proposition 47, which changes certain crimes from felonies to misdemeanors as a culprit for the increase in smash-and-grab robberies in the state. And the California State University system is making a major change to its admissions process. Students applying to state universities are no longer required to take standardized tests. NTD's Cynthia Kai has all the changes parents and students alike will need to watch out for. The California State University system will permanently abandon the use of SAT and ACT tests in its admissions process. The policy was first implemented on a temporary basis during the pandemic. And now, the CSU Board of Trustees voted unanimously to scrap the use of the standardized tests on Wednesday. Acting CSU Chancellor Steve Relier said in a statement that the move is in line with the university system's continued efforts to level the playing field and provide greater access to a high-quality college degree for students from all backgrounds. 
The CSU said the admissions process will evaluate students based on their grades in core subject classes, referred to as A through G courses, among other multifaceted admissions criteria. Those criteria have not yet been specified. Students can still take the SAT or ACT tests if they so choose. Scores can be used to place them into the appropriate level math and English courses. This decision follows the lead of the University of California system, which abandoned the tests in 2020. California's governor signed a law that would reduce abortion costs. The law eliminates out-of-pocket costs for abortions. A senator from Southern California first introduced the bill. More from NTD's Eileen Ng. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a new law that eliminates out-of-pocket costs for abortion and abortion-related services. In a statement, he said this would protect and advance reproductive freedom for all and ensure affordable access to abortion services so that out-of-pocket costs don't stand in the way of receiving care. Senator Lena Gonzalez introduced Senate Bill 245, also known as the Abortion Accessibility Act. It prohibits health plans and insurers from requiring copay, deductible, or other costs for women seeking abortion services, including pre-abortion and follow-up services. It also includes removing in-person follow-up visits and ultrasounds for medical abortion providers. Pro-life advocates like Seth Gruber told the Epic Times the new bill is part of a larger strategy and that the council wants to turn California into a sanctuary state for an abortion. California law allows pregnant women to terminate a pregnancy unless the fetus becomes viable, meaning it can survive outside of the uterus, typically around 28 weeks old, or to protect the mother's life or health. Idaho on Wednesday became the first state to enact a six-week abortion ban modeled on a Texas law that empowers private citizens to sue abortion providers. The law, which is due to take effect in 30 days, is narrower than the Texas measure since it only allows relatives of the embryo or baby to file lawsuits. The Texas law took effect on September 1st and allows members of the general public to sue anyone who helps a woman get an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. The number of abortions in Texas dropped by some 60% within the first month after that law took effect. That's according to state health department data. The Biden administration criticized the, the Idaho law on Wednesday and asked Congress to codify abortion rights at the federal level to override such state measures. Coming up, China is facing a severe COVID-19 outbreak, one of the worst since the virus first emerged in Wuhan. But how long will Beijing hold on to its strict zero cases policy? And in the UK, nursing home professionals say they still face staff shortages, despite the government scrapping the vaccine mandate in England. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. China has been implementing some of the world's strictest virus policies. But after two years of shutdowns, mass testing and quarantines, China's strategy is now being tested like never before. Here's more. For much of the globe, living with the Chinese Communist Party or CCP virus has become the new normal. The infection causes COVID-19 and has appeared as a number of variants around the world. Countries are largely adapting to seeing low numbers of virus long term. But in China and Hong Kong, a strict zero cases or zero COVID-19 policy is still in place. Though the Omicron variant has given the goal a run for its money. Fundamentally, I think the uh, Chinese government actually put itself above the natural laws. I don't think the human wisdom so far has been able to clearly forecast, predict 
or even control large pandemics in different regions, especially for respiratory infectious disease. The policy seeks to completely eliminate the virus from within China's borders, as well as the city of Hong Kong. But with tens of millions currently under lockdown in China and Hong Kong grappling with its worst outbreak yet, can China still hold on to the goal? That's totally unrealistic because these variants are so uh, transmissible, especially the BA.2, a sub-variant for the Omicron, is uh, actually 30% additional more transmissible than the Omicron original uh, variants. And trust me, fat and a lot of people um, who contracted the infection have no symptoms. So how does China enforce the policy? Basically, it means mass testing, contact tracing, immediately isolating the infected, bans on international and domestic travel, and citywide lockdowns. These methods were touted by China's communist leader Xi Jinping as being the most effective in dealing with the virus. But in reality, the policy comes at great cost. Unlike lockdown measures elsewhere, people in China can be locked up inside their homes if they're considered high risk. Public facilities can be closed with the people still inside if just a single infection or suspected infection is detected. Local officials are routinely punished for outbreaks in their areas, promoting them to implement extreme local virus measures to get case numbers down. In many locked-down communities, residents have complained about poor access to food, supplies and medical treatment. The policy has also caused repeated disruption to manufacturing and production, particularly in poor cities that endure constant lockdowns. It's too late to talk about zero tolerance. The virus was just spread out very fast. They can try these extreme measures, but eventually you have to open up and there will be people who just carry the virus but without symptoms. So they will still continue to, uh, to spread. The model started showing signs of strength last year followed by the more infectious Delta variant. Questions were raised about how long China could maintain the policy. And now Omicron has called it further into question. China's northeastern Jilin province was the country's first region to go under lockdown since the initial outbreak in Wuhan. The order affected millions. And in Hong Kong, officials are now seeing more than 10,000 cases and more than 200 deaths a day. The city's healthcare system has been overrun. So what is China still holding on to the zero cases policy? Experts say Beijing's communist leadership may have politicized China's pandemic response. For Beijing, a low COVID-19 death rate equates to proving the Chinese regime's legitimacy and governance model. State-run media in China have also tried to use the U.S. virus numbers as an example of democracy's failure. Now that the policy is showing signs of strength, China seems to be quietly planning a pivot away from it. Earlier this week, Chinese authorities announced they will isolate mild cases in centralized locations rather than treat them in hospitals. They also lowered the criteria for a patient to be discharged from quarantine. A Chinese national from New Jersey has been convicted of visa fraud. The Justice Department says Liu Jiangsan exploited a government program to help several employees working for Beijing to get J-1 visas. The department says this is against the visa program's rules. According to court documents, Jiangsan was involved in the Thousand Talents program, one of China's state-run recruitment programs. He now faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison. And in England, although the government scrapped the no-jab, no-job rule for care workers and public health care staff, it came after many care home staff had already been forced to leave their jobs. 
It's uncertain how many of those staff will return to work in the sector, even with the government's U-turn. At Care England Conference, NTD's Jane Werrell spoke with industry professionals about the challenges they face. The government made it a legal requirement last November for anyone entering a care home in England to have two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Friends and family of care home residents were exempt, but care home workers were told to get the jab or lose their job. The government may have scrapped the vaccine mandates, but it's uncertain whether people will want to go back to the jobs they lost. Now these uh, care homes are still trying to recoup the staff that they've lost. Um, they could re-employ re some of those staff, but the reality is if you've already been sacked from your job, you're unlikely to want to go back to work for, for them. It really has heavily affected a sector that has been working so hard and tirelessly over the past couple of years. Um, and then for the legislation to come in place, meaning that uh, many care workers have had to choose to leave their position, um, has had a real significant impact on the sector itself. Um, not only have we lost really great care workers, um, they, they may have gone out and found other positions in other sectors now. Uh, the question is, will, will they return? And um, we, we suspect some will, um, but, but many won't. And, and that's a really difficult thing for, for the care sector. Officials estimate around 40,000 care staff lost their jobs. The majority of care workers are women. Ministers have said both Brexit and Covid have added to staff shortages. Care bosses say they felt like residential care was used as a guinea pig for the vaccine mandate policy. The Royal College of Nursing represents almost half a million nursing staff in the UK. National Officer Claire Jacobs says despite the government U-turn, some organisations are keeping the vaccine mandate. The RCN's position is very, very clear, is that mandatory vaccine is not the way forward. We believe all nursing staff should have the vaccine. It's their, certainly in terms of registered staff, it's their professional responsibility to have the vaccine. We believe that's right and proper for their protection, but also the clients they're looking after. However, it shouldn't be mandatory. That needs to be made as a personal choice by everybody. Um, we're really concerned that some employers are still, and, and even before it became legislation, are still expecting that to be a mandatory uh, term of employment. And um, whilst we understand that during the legislative period, employers were forced to have to do that, and many were unhappy about that, and we've worked very closely to support those employers, um, there are other employers that actually um, continue to make it a, van a mandatory requirement. Um, which we think is, is not, repair, not, not fair. It's worth mentioning that the Health Secretary made a speech at the Care England conference and in it he thanked care home leaders and care home staff. He said that Covid isn't over but also said that the country is better defended against it, highlighting the vaccination programme, testing and also other treatments against Covid. He also said in response to a question that if there was an outbreak of COVID-19 in a care home, that it would be up to the care home manager's judgment on what measures to take. Now, he didn't accept an interview with us um, and he didn't mention the government's U-turn on the vaccine mandates in his speech. And of course, those vaccine mandates left a lot of care workers in a difficult position. I mean, some care workers would have taken the vaccine even though they weren't quite sure about it. And now with the U-turn and the vaccine mandates, they'll be left thinking, oh, what, what did I do that for? And it's also left the care home providers in a difficult position as they try their best to follow the laws while retaining their staff. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Coming up, 
up, consumers are struggling with historic gas prices and everyone is looking for relief. For some folks, it's their lucky day. A businessman is giving away free gas big time. And a New Jersey police officer and former pro basketball player is inspiring young people to achieve their goals. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Skyrocketing gas prices are hurting everyone, and one Chicago businessman is helping out. He's giving away a whopping $1 million of free gas to help people in need. Since 6.30 this morning, drivers have been lining up at this BP gas station in the Chicago suburb. They are here to get free gas offered by businessman Willie Wilson. Wilson, a 73-year-old Chicago businessman, is offering a $1 million gas giveaway. This is his second gas giveaway. We were giving away $1 million to make sure we can help more people. Last time, last week, we gave away the 200000 and it was a lot more people that didn't get gasoline, and so we thought we would extend it. The gas giveaway is happening simultaneously in 48 stations in Chicago and the suburbs. Each gas station will accommodate about 400 cars, and each driver gets up to $50 of free gas. Despite waiting for hours, the drivers are happy and grateful. We appreciate it, you know, it's a blessing. I don't work a lot because I go to college, so it's like nice. It's great. There should be more giveaways. It's a good thing that they do for the community. So, you know, I, anyways, I say thank you. Last week, Wilson's first $200,000 gas giveaway caused a massive traffic jam. This time, with the help of volunteers and police, this station is organized and orderly. I am volunteering, yes. This is great. I was just joking around that I don't normally pump gas in my own car. I always sit back and wait for my husband to take off his seatbelt and do it first. But uh, what Dr. Wilson is doing, this is for a very good cause. So I decided to come volunteer and pump gas for a little bit before I go to work. Wilson thanked the volunteers and police for their effort. He recounted the hardships he personally had over the years and is calling for the government's help during this difficult time. We worked 13 years and we didn't get paid without one penny. 13 years. And when I finally got a job, we got paid like 20 cents per hour, you know. And so we, we, we struggled. So I always remember them days. And so today I still work like I'm making 20 cents per hour. You know, we, we pump gas, we care about people, we help the homeless, we pay taxes. I'm hoping that the mayor of this city, the, the, the uh, governor of the state, uh, the federal government will lower these gas taxes. Wilson is a self-made multimillionaire. He owns a medical supply company and also produces the nationally syndicated gospel music television program, Sensation. He once ran for mayor of Chicago, the U.S. Senate, and president of the United States, unsuccessfully. Wilson says he's not ruling out more giveaways if gas prices keep rising. A New Jersey police officer is going beyond the call of duty by inspiring young students. He's teaching them about setting goals, hard work, and expecting nothing less than excellence. Here's that story. Here, raise your hand, someone to volunteer. Officer Reggie Wright no longer patrols. Instead, he makes the round every week to elementary schools in East Brunswick, New Jersey. 
spending time with 600 fifth grade students at eight different schools. An officer on a mission to teach what he learned in life outside the classroom, like how to live your dreams. So basketball kind of guided me. You know, growing up in the city of Trenton, it was so much that could kind of derail me. Officer Wright says his determination from a young age to play professional basketball shaped a lot of his life, all for the better, keeping him away from poor choices and bad influences while motivating him to succeed in school. Through hard work, more than raw talent, he says, he went on to play professional basketball in Europe. I was always thinking ahead, so I always had the end in mind. Where do I want to be? After conquering his first goal, inspired by a friend, he set a new goal, joining the police force. I said, man, here's a peer of mine who looks like me that's going to have a positive impact within the community. Officer Wright is today building his own legacy of community impact. I expect you to do your work with excellence. Inspiring the next generation to set goals early while giving them the tools to try to meet them. I set some goals that I want to read at least half a book every day, which I do. One of my goals is to finish school and get very good grades so I can go to college and become a entertainer. He taught me this uh, saying, show me your friends and I'll show your future. So I've been thinking very carefully about who I'm friends with and who I'm not friends with. If you ask the students, they say they're starting to believe they can do what they set their minds to, because Officer Wright is already proof that it works. So the curriculum talks about setting reachable goals, making responsible decisions, identifying managing your emotions, the effectiveness of communication, the influence of the peer group. It's part of a New Jersey-based program called Law Enforcement Against Drugs and Violence. Officer Wright says the lessons rang true to him, so he pitched it to the schools. And his students are proof he has succeeded again. My favorite thing that's definitely I like getting taught is definitely respect. It tells me how to respect others. It tells me how other people respect me. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.